understanding and plumbing the depths of 1 Corinthians 13, Lord. We're reminded that your love is infallible. It just, the depth of it is, is beyond us, Lord. And we look forward to the day when we step into your presence that we will grasp it for all of eternity. But Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we thank you for each and everyone that's here. What a joy to see so many here uh, worshiping, gathering together, fulfilling the great command of seeking time to be together as a church, uh, encouraging each other, uh, worshiping together in corporate worship, being under the word in a corporate group. Lord, there's strength and power to that that you give us as we study together. And so we thank you for that, Lord. But Lord, there are clearly those who cannot be here today. Lord, some are in the hospital even as we speak. Some have gone through procedures this week. Some are struggling with their health. And some maybe just hurting in other areas. And so, Lord, we pray that you administer to them. I pray they are listening even now, Lord, and that they would be encouraged this morning, Lord. Father, we think of our missionaries around the world. I can't help but pray for them daily. I'm so blessed to have a relationship with them. We are so blessed as a church to support them, Lord, and care for them and watch them and encourage them do what we can't do. And so, Lord, we give towards that. We pray towards that. And we long for your peace in their lives and that you would give them favor wherever they are, Lord. Lord, we thank you for all that are serving today here, Lord, from children's ministry to the ushers to sound booths. Uh, to so many areas that people serve here, Lord. Would you bless them for that, Lord? Cause them to have great joy as they serve you. Lord, now as we turn to your word, Lord, bring it to our heart. Come to our minds and drop it down into our hearts. And let it build us strong to be lovers of you and lovers of one another. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I apologize in advance as I, uh, Saturday, as I got done with my message and started looking at it, I finally dropped in and looked at the order of the service, and uh, this will give you a little bit of view into your pastor's uh, mind some days, and I go, oh, we have communion tomorrow. <laughs> so I may not get through this whole sermon, but hey, we're going to come back and finish it next week. Uh, I know you laugh at me, um, uh, but I challenge any of you to go to 1 Corinthians and look at it through the eyes of the love of Christ. I could preach on this till I die. That's how much depth the scripture has on this particular subject. And so I want to get through at least uh, four through eight here, or the beginning of eight uh, this morning, and then we'll transition right into communion, which I can't think of a better way for us to think about the love of Christ uh, to finish in communion this morning. But to give you a little bit of uh, way I think, and way I think the, the, the Bible thinks, is how, how do I get to this point where I preach uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, through the view of the love of Christ. Well, let me start with some verses. I want to give you just a way of introduction. I want to give you a little trail of where my mind went and how I got here. Let's start in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. I want you to go here. You need to mark these verses in your Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. We know this verse. Many of you can quote it, but we need to read it. We need to see it, put our fingers on it, and remind ourselves of the truth of it. This is where I started when I began to think about this passage in its fulfillment in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I started with God. The Bible says here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that the one who does not love does not know God. So right there, there tells you an absence of something that is so essential for eternal life. Do you get that? 
The one who does not love does not know God. Now, this is a, a particular love for God. It, it tells us that there's an essential, eternal uh, evidence that's missing in the unbeliever. But then it makes this great statement. And this got me going. Look at the end of verse 8. For God is love. There's all kinds of statements going on there about love. Love is love, you know, love all, you know, all that stuff's going on. It, it, it's very, very false in what they begin to think about love. The Bible says clearly in this passage that God is love. He is the standard of love. He's the definition of love. He's the complete understanding of the profoundness of love. But you go, well, he's God, right? And, and he's infinite. Yes. But God has shown us himself clearly through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's where my next thought went to. Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You're now in the scary mind of Scott as he works through the scriptures. John chapter 1. Drop down to the end of the prologue, verse 18, with me. And then we'll start to piece this together. No one has seen God at any time. Verse 18. So, God has not been seen. So, what we see in the Old Testament when people see God is the pre-incarnate Christ. He's always been the representative of the Trinity. So, so no one has seen God at any time. Now, look at this. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. Now, that is a profound statement to talk about the equality of the Son. That when you look at the Father, you see the Son. And when you look at the Son, you see the Father. They have this inseparable essence and nature to them. Now, look at this last phrase. And before I read this last phrase, remember the Bible said God is love in 1 John 4, 8. Look at this. He, Jesus Christ, the Word verse 14, has explained him. The idea is he has exegeted him. It's a great word for those who study the scriptures. We exeget the scriptures. We draw the deep truths out of it. We understand from study and exegeting the word of God, Jesus is the exeget of the Father. So if God is love, we now understand love through the exegetical work of the Lord Jesus and his appearance to us so we can know the Father in full through Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? Now, one more verse. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. The praying letter, because Paul prays often in this letter. Uh, he preaches and prays and preaches and prays and just full of doctrine and truth and application. Chapter 3, verse 14, he falls on his knees in a sense. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Well, here's the reason. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name. Everything comes from him. Everything good comes from the Father above. Verse 16, that he would grant you it gets very personal here, right? If he would grant you, read this for yourself, according to the riches of his glory, the, the fathomless treasures of the person of God, right? To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So this is not an outward thing. This is the work of the spirit working internally in us. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, right? 
Salvation comes through faith alone, right? Not through works. So Christ dwells through faith. Now this faith produces something that you, you, again, very personal, being rooted and grounded in love. That's what God wants us, grounded in his love. God is love. Christ has explained the Father. He's exegeted him. Now we're grounded in that love. Now look at this. Maybe uh, maybe able, now here's what happened is we're grounded, and, we, and this is a continual tense here, that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. Now notice that last verse, that you may know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. That's what the Corinthians thought they were doing. Oh, we know all things. We're, who are you, Paul, to tell us? We, we know all things. We have the gift of knowledge. I'll tell you what the gift of true knowledge leads you to, the love of Christ. And guess what the love of Christ does for you? It brings you and fills you up with the fullness of God. Isn't that beautiful? See that connection? God is love. Christ is the exegete of the Father. He brings us into the full knowledge of God through the love of Christ. That's where, that's where this whole passage has begun to just uh, be unpacked in my mind as I've studied this. And so all that the Father is, the Son is, and all that the Son is, the Father is, there's this inseparable nature to them. And as we talk about the love of Christ today, know that we're talking about the love of the Father. We're talking about the love of the Spirit. This triune God loves us, and he draws us to himself. Well, turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we will spend some time here uh, defining the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is my goal today. Number one, the exemplary and unmatched love of Christ. I just weighed into this last week and then had to quit. But we touched on briefly the love of Christ is patient. Notice that in verse 4. Love is patience. And here um, I love to take the word love and replace it with Christ or add Christ in here. The love of Christ is patient. And this, remember, we talked about patience as the one who suffers long is the idea of the term. It's one who may receive an unfairly costly energy, uh, injury but does not seek revenge for it. What a statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were reminded that our Lord, when he was uh, suffering unjustly, did not revile in return. There was no deceit found in his mouth, and he trusted himself to the Father. He's a great example. We also reminded ourselves that Jesus shows extreme patience. We talked about Judas and Peter, both of those men, certainly on different eternal tracks. But God, Christ, showed his patience with both of them. Patience with his disciples who were arguing who is the greatest and going to be the greatest in the kingdom the night of his death. <laughs> the night before his death. He was patient with them, patient with a nation as he falls uh, on the Mount of Olives and looks across at the nation of Israel and says, only if you would have believed in me, only if you would have turned to me, I'd have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. He was patient with his accusers. Think about that. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Our Lord shows the definition of patience. Pilate, the thief, Nicodemus, we talked about all of these scenes. Notice the nation, and uh, one of the fascinating things about the nation is they tried to shove him into being king. Jesus was patient. That's not what he came for that first trip. That's not why he was here. In fact, he says, if that's why I was here, my, my, uh, my kingdom would rise up, my people would rise up. 
But he's not, that's not why he was here. He's patient to first die for us, be resurrected from death so that he can be our king of kings. He was patient with that. Satan tried to give him the kingdom early, didn't he? Here, bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdom of the world. That's not what he was here for. In fact, he owns those kingdoms and he will have them again someday. But he came patiently to die for us. And so God is incredibly forbearant in his love for us, isn't he? And the Bible speaks of God's love for us. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but think of this, but is patient towards you. Listen, if you're a believer in here, you've got to agree with that, right? Man, was God patient with me. He, he let me even use his name as a curse word. He let me deny that Jesus was the only way to heaven for a long, long time before he saved me. And then one day, his, his patience came to uh, a great climax where he drew me to himself and I now know that he died for me. What an amazing teaching of the patience of God when we just look at our own lives, isn't it? Romans 9 tells us that he endures with much patience vessels of wrath. You know, there's a lot of vessels of wrath on this earth right now. There are those who will see the full judgment of God, not the love of God in eternity. But he's patient, isn't he? And sometimes we don't like that patience. Like, God, get them. <laughs> don't let them get away with that. But God is even patient in his judgment because his patience is connected to his sufficiency and his perfection, isn't it? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul has been telling us that he is the chief of sinners. And he says this, For this reason I found mercy, so that in me, the foremost, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. I hope you, like I read that verse, and I don't read that as Paul, I read that as me. And what I see when I read Paul's testimony in 1 Timothy, I realize that because our Lord was patient, Thinking personally, I am a trophy of his grace. It's amazing, isn't it? I'm a trophy of his grace and patience as he claims me for himself for eternal life. 2 Peter 3.15 says this, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Peter was talking about Paul's preaching. He regards the patience of our Lord as salvation. What a link to that. The next one we just briefly got into was uh, love, Christ's love is kind, right? Well, kindness speaks of putting oneself at the ready aid of someone else, no matter what the cost. Ready to aid someone, no matter what it costs you. That's the idea of the word kindness here. It's an amazing word. It is a mixture of usefulness and availability. And that certainly describes the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to go to the book of Hebrews and just... I just picked out a couple. You could spend so much time just showing the kindness of Christ. But look at Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Let me show you a few verses here you can put your finger on. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Just think about that just for a moment. The king of glory, the creator of all things had to be made like his brethren. And you've heard me say this many times, haven't you? You can't kill God. 
So God the Son took on flesh so he could be killed. And along that, as he took on that flesh, as he added flesh to his deity in perfect harmony, he made himself an example for everything we go through. He is the one who shows us what love is and patience and kindness. And so the Bible says he had to be made like his brethren in all things, kindness and patience and so forth, so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in these things pertaining to God to make propitiation, this satisfactory payment would satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of his people. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. Now look at this. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's pure kindness. That's pure kindness. Jesus stands ready to come to your aid. Remember, that's the definition of this. One who puts himself ready to aid no matter what the cost. He stands ready to come to your aid. Will you call on him or will you just try to muscle your way through it? See, that's our problem, isn't it? We just muscle our way. We, uh, you've heard me say this. We always add a six solace. We sola bootstrapped us because our dads taught us that, right? Come on, son, get up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not how it works in the Christian life. The more you try that, the more arrogant you will become. Less loving. We bow our knee to the one who has suffered all things, who can come to our aid. See, this is why our prayer lives are not where they should be. Isn't that true? Because we don't pray because we don't need his aid. I don't need your aid. I'm just going to go do this, Lord. So I read this verse and I go, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Pure kindness. Are you, are you reaching out to him? Are you saying, Lord, I need you. Please aid me in this. Some people never get over temptations. They struggle them their entire lives because they never come to the one who suffered all things so he can come to your aid. Chapter 7, another great verse. There's many in here, but I just picked out a few. Chapter 7, verse 24. The context is that there's these other priests. They were serving in this temporal role. They were not the true high priest that Jesus was, and they had to uh, constantly offer sacrifices for themselves. They could not guarantee forgiveness. It had to be done again and again. But, verse 24, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds a high priestly priesthood permanently. He doesn't die, right? He's eternal. All the other priests died off, right? Jesus doesn't. He was raised from the dead. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God. How? Through him. Now look at this. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. I have that word always circuit in my Bible right here. He's always. <laughs> he's not sometimes. He's not every once in a while making an appearance. The Bible said he's always living to make intercession with you and God. That is pure kindness. Because without him, I can't get to God. He's there always. See, this should stimulate our prayer life. It should stimulate a prayer list of things that we're praying for and people we're praying for and full of gratitude and thanksgiving because he's always there, brothers and sisters. This is the kindness of our God. Chapter 9, verse 11 
this section just exudes the kindness of Christ. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things to come, <laughs> man, I'm glad we're not in the Old Testament, right? Another lamb, another grain offering, just waiting. No, no, he's better. That's what Hebrews is about. He's better, he's greater, right? But when Christ appears as a high priest of good things to come, he enters through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. So not earthly. This is, this is something way beyond what was, what was in view of something greater, right? Not with, made with hands. Moses gave instruction. God gave Moses instruction. Moses gave the people instructions, and they built the tabernacle in the desert at Mount Sinai. That is to say, not of this creation, verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. We don't come to God any other way except the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you try to come any other way, baptism, church attendance, money, good works, you are eternally damned. There is no other way to the Father except his blood. And this is the most kindest act that our creator, savior, God, would step out of heaven, add to his deity flesh, live a perfect life on this earth and die a perfect death, beat death, be resurrected, sit on high on the right hand of the Father and be your intercessor. And he did that all through his blood. Man, that makes me want to live for Jesus. I hope it, want to make, hope it makes you want to live for Jesus. He's worth living for, isn't it? Notice the Bible says this, he entered the holy place once for all. Isn't it kind of God that there was a one-act salvation for us? There isn't just repeat, start over. Repeat, start over. This is what all the religions of the world do, because if you're coming by your works, you better repeat, start over, start over, repeat, so and so and so. Not our Lord Jesus. One time. He obtained, a, look at this, he obtained a perfect, eternal redemption. Wow. If that isn't, kindness, that God redeemed this wretched sinner, not for a day, not for two weeks, not for a month, not for just a lifetime here on this earth, but he, he redeemed me permanently. <laughs> That's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's pure kindness. As you make your way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let me just give you a few more thoughts along that. Kindness is just the mark of the Trinity, isn't it? Titus 3, 4 through 8 says this, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, there's God, right? He saved us not on the basis of our deeds, which were done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration by the Holy Spirit. There's a third member of the Trinity, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There's the second member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all working in conjunction, in perfect harmony to bring their kindness to us, to save us. This is what he does. Paul uh, warns the Roman church, and I like this verse. This verse it means a lot to me. Chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Now listen to this phrase. Knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. There's nobody saved in this room who hasn't experienced the kindness of God. Now, I think all men, all people, all mankind experience the kindness of God. It sends rain 
and, and food and gives everything good, uh, good to the to evil and the good, right? Everything good comes down from the Father above. But there's a particular kindness here that leads people to repentance. If you've repented of your sin, it's because of the kindness of God. And you, and you go, okay, we can swim in the deep end of the pool if you want here for a moment. What it tells you is he didn't have to do that. What it tells us is that we are undeserving of our salvation. He would have been perfectly just to leave us in our sins. I know that's so hard for humans to get their mind around, but God is a just God, and he would have been perfectly justified to say, Scott, you're a sinner. Your wages is death. That's it. But he adds another part to that verse, doesn't he? <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? For the wages of sin is death. But the what? The gift. <laughs> the gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord, that's kindness, isn't it? That's salvation through Christ. And so God's kindness leads you to repentance. If you're here this morning, and maybe you're here and you're hearing the gospel, and you're not a believer, and you hear it and you believe it, that's God right now reaching down, showing his kindness to you. And those of us that have been saved, maybe for many years, have we forgotten the kindness of God? Do we get carried away with jobs and money and finances and marriage and, and love and all the things that we wrestle with in this life of flesh? And sometimes do we forget the kindness of God? I'm, I'm telling you, you, go back and study this a little bit, it'll re-energize you. Our God is a kind God. And he has been particularly kind to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll say, where did this all begin? Well, the Bible says it began way before the beginning. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined, he predetermined us to be adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that amazing? His kindness is not, it's never based on us. And I love, the reason why the doctrines of grace is such an important thing is because it shows us that the kindness was not based on my church attendance. It wasn't based on my upbringing, born in a Christian home. I'm sure I was in church the Sunday after I was born. My mom played the organ. I sat on the left side, third row back, right? Seven seats, a Menez family. I'm not saved because I went to church. I'm saved because God predetermined me before the foundations of the world in an inescapable grace. He drew me to himself. And these truths remind us of that. They remind us that I had nothing to do with this. This is the pure kindness of God. The verse says he predetermined, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself. Now listen to this. According to the kind intention of his will. Wow. You see why I can't get through this chapter? I mean, do you get it? You just, you just keep going, right? You can't get to the end of this thing. All right. Christ's love is not jealous. Let's move on. Just for the sake of having to go. Christ's love is not jealous, not sinfully jealous, right? The word means to have a, an inward boil, right? So the, the negative side is an inward boil for something that somebody else has that you want. That's, that's not love, right? But Christ, let me say, tell you this, Christ's love boils for you. It boils. The Father's love boils for you. It carries an intense desire for his children. 
God has an intense desire for his children. Way back in Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, the nation is down at the foot of the mountain. Moses is up on the mountain, and God is speaking to him. He says, you shall not worship any other god. Why? For the Lord your God is named Jealousy. That's what the Bible says. The Lord your God, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Why is he jealous? Because worshiping anything else than him is deadly eternally. You put anything before God, you try to get to heaven any other way, you put any other God there or some other way you want to get to heaven, it is eternally deadly. God's love is jealous for you. He does not want you dabbling with the world's gods. He does not want you flirting with the world's gods. He knows they're deadly to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15 says the love of Christ controls us. I'll get into this verse a little more. But the reason it controls us is so that we will live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again for us. And we, so we patiently grow because there's this loving desire. Jesus was, was jealous for us. He did not want to lose us. All that the Father gives me, I will lose none of them. He was not going to give us up. So Jesus' love for us is perfect, jealous love. He won't share us with another. Praise God. Praise God. Isn't that the mark of a faithful marriage? We don't share with anyone else what belongs only to our spouse. That's a faithful marriage, isn't it? We don't share it with anyone else. Only belongs to her. That was my vow. So, so isn't that beautiful? But see, that's what Jesus does. Paul says this, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I'm 2 Corinthians eleven two. For I betrothed you to one husband so that, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Christ doesn't want to share you. I mean, when we watch the nation fall apart and turn away from God as the Old Testament continues on, the language is very graphic, isn't it? Adulterous type of language. God is jealous for us. Christ is jealous for us. Paul says, look, I'm, I do not want you to be flirting around with, with your pride, with paganism and all these other things, because my goal is to give you as a pure virgin to Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's pretty straightforward language, isn't it? That's how the Lord looks at us. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, God is speaking to John and showing him the future there in, in the, the kingdom of heaven and has come down on earth. It's just a beautiful scene that's gone on. And at the end of verse 9, he says, come here, come here. And notice what he says. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's you and me. Come here, John. This hasn't happened yet. It's, a, it's looking forward to the future. Uh, I'm going to show you something. But come here. I want you to see the bride. He's jealous for us, isn't he? He does not want us flirting with the world. Christ's love does not brag, as we continue on in verse 4. Christ's love does not brag. Does not brag sinfully, right? The root word here, we get the English word to boast, Right? It means to parade oneself in front of others is the negative side of this. But let me say this. Christ's love is never sinful in bragging the way fallen humanity does. But boy, does he brag about his people. 
You go, well, how does he do that? Listen to First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 8 says that there are those who stumble over Christ. But verse 9 uses a great conjunction. It says, but you. After it's talked about this list of people who stumble over Jesus Christ and fall to destruction. That's what the verse says, verse 8. Verse 9, he says, but you. Now, you want to hear about Jesus bragging about us? You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Wow, is that bragging on us. I don't deserve that. I don't, need, I don't deserve to be a holy ethnos of people, right? There's, there's this holy people of God that he's drawn out of the world and put into this eternal relationship as family, as heirs, as royal heirs, as priests who can come into the presence of God. Wow, is he bragging on his, bragging on his bride. Men, I hope you brag on your bride because Jesus brags on us. That's what he does. He sets the example of that, doesn't he? This is our Lord. He goes on to say, you were not a people, but now you are a people. I love that. Let me put it this way. You were nobody until Christ got you. You all right with that? You okay with that? Because that's what we are. We're a bunch of nobodies. In fact, nobodies that were heading to hell. But God got us, made us his own family, right? We didn't have mercy, the verse goes on to say, but now you have mercy. And then he urges us, hey, don't get comfortable in this world. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Why? Because you belong to me. And I've bragged about you. You're my chosen race. You're my priesthood. You're my, you're my holy nation. You're my people of my own possession. You belong to me. So don't mess around with sin. Christ is not sinfully arrogant, is the next statement. Christ is not sinfully arrogant. The word arrogant denotes the idea of being overinflated. It has the idea of a sophisticated knowledge. Um, it's often used of an inner arrogance that drives love away. Ooh, man, that's dangerous. We've got to be careful of that, brothers and sisters. But we're in a church that preaches the full counsel, aren't we? I've already talked about some things on here people are probably ready to leave with <laughs> or somebody won't put up with, right? Doctrines of grace, you know, predestination. Oh. No, no, we preach the whole council here. We're not afraid of those things. In fact, we, it brings us to worship, doesn't it? But when we start to think about this, it needs to crush inner arrogance. It needs to crush our inner arrogance that thinks we have something um, that makes us more pleasurable. <laughs> now I have to, because of what Jesus has done, we should be loving people. But inner arrogance is dangerous, isn't it? Because inner arrogance can put out a facade on the outside, but be so destructive from what's inside. And, and, and see, this is anything but Christ. In fact, the love of Christ is, is powerful. And, and let me tell you this, it's not wimpy. Listen to what he says in John chapter 10, 16 and following. This is, this is what loving confidence looks like coming from Jesus Christ. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. Listen to this, this strong language here. I must bring them in also. First time I ever read this verse, I said, he's talking to me. He's thinking about Scott. 
because I'm not a Jew and I'm, I'm, I'm not in the Hebrew nation. I, I'm, not in, I'm not walking with him at this time. I'm not even around. This was 2,000 years ago. The Bible says he must bring us in also. And look at this. They will hear my voice. This is great loving confidence. They will hear my voice. And I heard it. 1970, I heard it. Scott, you have not my father's holiness, so you cannot be in his presence. I am the only way, the truth, and the life. I heard it. Did you hear it? Because that's what he does. This is the loving confidence. He's not arrogant. He's loving confidence. They'll hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Isn't that beautiful? There's a day where he's going to pull us all together. For this reason, the father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it away from me. Loving confidence here. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He beats death. See, that's a huge difference between arrogancy and loving confidence. He knows the Father's plan. He's come to fulfill it and nobody's stopping him for rescuing you and me. I love that. John says this about him. John the Baptist says, look, I baptize you with water, but there's one here that's going to baptize you with fire, right? And he says, it's he who comes after me whose thong sandal, the, 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 the thong of his sandal, I can't even undo. I'm not worthy to do that. That's who this Lord is. And so that's why Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will, will come to me. I, I circle those great statements like that in my Bible. Because they teach me that it's not if they're going to come or maybe they're going to come or based on their own decisions or whatever they're going to do or circumstances in life. It says, no, they will come to me. And I praise God daily that he did what I could not do. I hope you do as well. Jesus has a confident love for us. It is not arrogant. And it's demonstrated in how he saves us. Look at verse 5. Wow, we've gone one verse. Whew, 5, here we go. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account wrong suffered. Well, Christ's love does not act unbecomingly. The word unbecomingly here has the idea of disgraceful or dishonorable. It even speaks of indecent behavior. But let me say this, brothers and sisters. Christ's love was and is beautiful. It's the most beautiful thing you can ever think about. I hope smiles went on your face as we sang some of those songs. The love of God. <laughs> what a great old hymn that just never loses its strength and authority because it brings us back to the love of God in the um, sufficiency of it. it. It never runs out. The depth of it is unfathomable. And so we have this love that's beautiful. And so Paul writes it this way, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated in his own love towards us in that while we were sinners, What? Christ died for us. <laughs> That's anything but unbecomable, right? That's honorable, right? The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Think about that. that that's, that's the opposite of unbecoming. That, that's honor. That's hero stuff, isn't it? That's dive in front of the one who is going to receive the punishment, dive in front of it, dive in front of the bullet, dive in front of that, and take it in their place. All that was deserved. I love that verse. It's, it's, it's just the doctrine of imputation, right? The father takes the sins of Scott, 
impresses them, puts them, imputes them upon Jesus, takes his righteousness and imputes it upon me. Now, that ain't love. I, 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 I'm done, right? That's, it's the most loving thing that could ever happen. Complete, undeserved grace, mercy, all expressed in the lovingness of God. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Next one. Christ's love does not seek its own. I've got to pick up the pace here. Christ's love does not seek its own. Christ's love is not self-seeking. It's not a self-seeker love. Although when he draws us to himself, he does it in such a way he's not sinful, right? But he's not a, he doesn't have a self-seeking love. His true love seeks to edify and build up. And we know this because Philippians 2, 5 and following say this. Have this attitude which is also in Christ Jesus. Well, what attitude is that? Well, although he existed in the form of God, totally equal with God, shared nature with, shared the very essence and nature of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He decided that God, this is the will. We've laid this down from the foundations of the world. I have this right hand position of yours, so everything you are, I am. But I am going to veil that. I'm going to choose not to hold on to that. I'm going to I'm going to go to the earth, add flesh to my deity, and there rescue men. And how does he do that? The Bible says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, those two phrases go together. He, God, creator, sustainer of all life, takes on humanity, becomes not just a human, he becomes a bondservant. This is a love that doesn't seek itself, right? This is a love that has everything. Every angel, every whim at his, his desire is there to be fulfilled. He's a bondservant now. He's in the likeness of men. Look at verse 8. Being found in the appearance of man, he looks like a man. He is fully man, and yet he's God. And in that God-man state, he humbles himself and becomes obedient to the point of death, even the death of what? A cross. That's not self-seeking. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve to give his life a ransom for all. Christ's love does not provoke is our next one. The word provoke literally means uh, something of sharpness, the idea of sharp, right? Provoking is poking somebody, right? Jesus doesn't do that. I was reminded of the beautiful story of John chapter 4 and the Samaritan woman at the well. When I studied that through the years, I have begun to understand that the woman at the well was a very edgy woman. Her sin has hardened her. She doesn't put up with much. She's not welcome to come in the morning because the women don't put up with her, but she's tough, man. And when you study her, she constantly throws these little barbs back at Jesus. And she's constantly changing the subject because she doesn't want to deal with the truth. And she's, she's edgy and she's sharp. But Jesus turns to him in his kindness and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. He, he takes people who are sharp, right? I've had so many, particularly young men, I think of a couple in my mind who said, Pastor, you just don't know how arrogant and foolish I was, how I spoke about Christians and God and Jesus and I just slandered them. I hated them. Then one day he saved me. Isn't that amazing? Some, some of you have that testimony, right? Some of us maybe were raised in the church and we knew better not to say those things, but we were fully capable of it. Don't, don't miss that. There's, no, there's nobody more righteous than somebody else before salvation. But, but that's what Jesus does, doesn't he? He takes those who poke at him and 
jaw at him and reject him as creator, savior, and sustainer all their life. And all of a sudden, he floods his kindness on them, and they repent. There's testimonies in here of men who are of a little bit aged that just stir my heart, who have stood in those waters of baptism and said, I live for myself for all these years. And then Jesus in his kindness saved me. Well, there is no greater evidence of that than 1 Peter chapter 2. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. Man, sharp jags, right? If you're really the son of God, come off that cross and save yourself and save us and, and put these, all these people to shame, right? I mean, they were just ridiculing, wagging their finger at him. He uttered no threats. No threats. But he kept entrusting himself to the judge who judges righteously, right? And he himself bore our sins. This is what he does. This is, this is the one who does not provoke but takes it on, doesn't he? Next, Christ does not take into account wrong suffered. The idea literally has the idea of holding, uh, holding the offense against them. But here we carries the idea of not holding an offense accountable for the evil or even the injury one has suffered because of someone else. This kind of love is... is is so, so Christ-like, right? Because it's a kind of love that closes the book on, on what's been done to you. It's not keeping a constant record. It's, it's a kind of love that really is able to forgive. Wow, is that a description of Jesus, isn't it? He's hanging on the cross. They're mocking him. Luke 23, 34, Father, what? Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Psalms 103 is a favorite of a lot of ours, verses 10 through 12. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Hmm. There certainly was a record, wasn't there? Not rewarding us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the loving kindness towards those who fear him. How far as the east, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Wow. That's love. It is hard not to remember people who hurt you. Isn't it? Come on, let's be honest. It's hard, man. We struggle with that. Some of you have been through some real injuries from people. Unfair, totally unjust. Some of us make them up like they're worse than they are. But some people are really done that way. But, but God doesn't do that. He doesn't keep this record. And I love Colossians chapter 2 because verse 13 says that we were dead in our transgressions, we are uncircumcised in our flesh, but he made you alive together, having forgiven all of your transgressions. And here's what he did. He took that list, having nailed it to, nailed, excuse me, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of the decrees against us, which were hostile to him, taken them out of the way and nailed them to the cross. You know that list that this verse talks about that doesn't keep record? He nailed it to the cross with him. Isn't it amazing that God never chooses to bring up my sin after he's forgiven me? Boy, there's a lot of lessons there, right? Isn't this the way we're supposed to love? Look at verse 6. Love does not rejoice, or Christ does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but Christ rejoices in truth. Unrighteousness will never be found in the love of Christ. Christ is perfect and we're not, but he can make us perfect. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he said, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus does. He makes you perfect. 
I have, on this earth, I'm still a work in progress, but in my standing and in your standing, in Jesus Christ, position in Christ, I stand perfect before my Father. Can you get your mind around that? Because if you can, you should come preach this because I'm still working on it. Because I know me, right? Do you know yourself? Do you, do you say, God, I don't feel perfect, but I trust your word because you have perfectly saved me and I have a perfect standing with you. And you look at me in your son who is perfect. Everything about this is perfect. Help me live for you. Help me pursue that. Paul already dealt with some of these difficult issues in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that's all of us. Do not be deceived. Here's a list. Ready? This is the stuff he doesn't remember against us. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor infeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor coverages. Took us all out right there. If you're doing pretty good on that list, you just got wiped out on that one. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We're all going to hell. <laughs> That's what the verse tells us, isn't it? Oh, hold on. Such were some of you. Amen? But listen to this. But you. Somebody said it over here. What a conjunction. But you. You were washed. See, this is, this is a, a God who rejoices in righteousness. He washes you. He washes you clean like white as snow. But you were sanctified. You were set apart from the world and all the death and damnation that comes with sin. You were set apart, sanctified. You were justified. I declared you righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. I declare you righteous. That's why the Bible says... He rejoices in righteousness and truth. That's who he is. So he declares us, justifies us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the spirit of God, he declares us righteous. That's our standing. And that's what Christ's love does. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. And brother and sister, if you're engaged in unrighteous living, meaning you are going against what you know the Bible teaches, which is wrong, which is, non, which is unrighteous according to God's standard. If you know you're doing that and you continue in it, it causes you to fear whether you're saved or not. If you hate your sin, it doesn't mean we don't have struggles. Look, I'm, there's a difference between living in sin and battling, right, through the strength of Christ. But when you learn to, to, to hate, uh, I think Aaron said it today, it's a good definition of, of holiness, hate what God hates and love what God loves, when we're in that battle and that, and, in that way of learning to love the things the Lord loves, and, and when those things come up that are our unrighteousness, we learn to see those are and quit blame shifting them on this person and that person and all that other stuff, but learn to say, oh God, this is what your son died for. Give me strength and victory over this. And then you start to be one who rejoices in truth. See, truth and love, they always go together. And they always produce growth. And that's why Paul said, speaking the truth and love, we grow up in all aspects into him. It's time for some of you to grow up. It's time for some of you to say, you know what, I need to put away this selfishness and this unrighteousness that I keep trying to justify because of her or him or this or that or I don't have enough of this or whatever it is and realize that Jesus Christ saved me and I'm righteous, and I rejoice in that truth. You can be dead broke and re -truth, uh, rejoice in the truth of God and his mercy on you and be the happiest person in the world. You can have all the money in the world and not rejoice in the, in the righteousness that God has given you and be miserable. 
You say, can I have both? (laughs) Sometimes he gives you that. And so we find that this agape love that's demonstrated by Christ rejoices in truth. And so where you find righteousness, you will find truth. And love shines forth. This is what Christ does. These are inseparable bond, righteousness and truth. God is that standard. Look at verse 7 with me. Here we find four things that magnify the love of Christ. He bears all things. It has the idea, this bears all things, is the idea of tolerating everything because of unconditional love. Let me give you three words that I just wrote in my notes that, that help me understand Jesus Christ bears all things. Three words. It is finished. I don't say that. Those three words. He bore, 1 Peter 2, 24, 25 says, he bore in his body our sins. It is finished. You say, Scott, but I have this problem. I have that. I love that song, the middle song we sing. We went through this list of things, and you're doing pretty good, and all of a sudden goes uh, this. And And pretty soon all of us are going, yes, I would need to come to Jesus. See, he bears all those things. He bears them. And we, and, and, and we are worshipers because he, belt, he bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness is what the verse says. Are you dying to sin because he died for your sin? Are you still living it and trying to have some kind of righteousness? It just doesn't work that way, brothers and sisters. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, here's the clause, here's the understanding of what happened there, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He believes all things. Christ's love believes all things. It has, the word believes all things has this idea of welcoming and trust. This gives hope to those around him, he, he, he draws people to himself, right? When you get around Jesus, when you start to study and you read his life and you see who he is, you get caught in his love tractor beam in a sense, right? You just go, wow, what a person. There's a sense that you know Jesus believes you, right? I, I, we struggle with this because some people won't believe you, but... but he does, and, 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 I, and I think he's the, the epic center of belief in somebody, right? He, he knows the Father gave you to him, and so he knows what he has to do to draw you to himself. And you say, well, wait a minute, does, he has faith in us? Well, Jesus doesn't need faith because he believes God's Father, the Father's plan, right? He's not after his own will, he's after the Father's plan. Um, but does the love of God or the love of Christ mean that he believes in us? Well, the Bible says he knew us from the foundations of the world. He made known to us the mysteries of his will. Think about that in that, in that, that lane right there. He believes in it, and he entrusts us with his truth. See, if, if he is not for us, he's a what? And so because he's for us, he unveils the mystery of salvation to you. The mystery of the Father, the mystery of eternal life, he unveils all of that to you. That's what faith affords you. Faith affords you a God who believes in you and grants you all of these things because he knew you from the foundations of the world. He also, Ephesians 1, 11 says that we obtain an inheritance. 
being predestined according to his purpose. He works all things in the counsel of his will. This is this idea that he knows us and draws us to himself, and he's doing this all according to his perfect counsel. And so and if, here's the way I look at this. We are a gift from the Father to the Son, and as his children, he in a very real sense believes in us because he knows our hearts, and we've been changed by his Son's finished work. And so there is this knowing us and believing in us. I love to believe my children. Now, they may prove that they're wrong in some case, and you have to discipline them, but I love to believe in them. I think if you could ask my boys, they would say, Dad believed in us. And, and he, he corrected us when we were wrong, but he believed. And now think about a father who is perfect. He believes in you. He, he's entrusted you all this truth, this relationship with him through Jesus Christ. See, I, I have to be, we have to be careful of this because it can go down a slippery slope with some of the prosperity gospel. It's not where I'm going. It, it's a reassurance that my, my God and Savior loves me, and he's for me. Maybe some of you here struggle with that. You think God is against you. If you're a believer, he's not against you. He's for you. He's for you, and he loves you, and he's proven it over and over and over, and he never leaves and forsakes those he loves. Isn't that a good reminder? Christ's love hopes all things. Well, this is the idea of something better to come. Romans 5, 5 says that hope does not disappoint. Isn't that beautiful? Because, the reason that hope doesn't disappoint, because the love of God's been poured out in your heart through the Holy Spirit. The love of God's been poured into your heart, and so now you have hope. You have hope that there's something better coming after this fallen world, right? Colossians 1, 27, to, who, to whom God willed to make known the riches of the glory of his mysteries among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God willed to make Christ known in you, which is your hope. Without him, you're what? Hopeless. And so he made us known. Paul opens the letter to, his first letter to Timothy and says this in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior and Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Thank you. I know it's getting late. Last one, 8. Certainly Christ's love endures, doesn't it? He humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. He delivered us, oh, he was delivered over for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. His love is forever. One of the verses I absolutely love that demonstrates God's love is found in Jeremiah 31 3. Just jot this down and look it up and put it on your refrigerator. This is God speaking out of love for a, a nation that rejected him. He says this through the, through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Listen to this. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. None of that is based on their performance. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Do you not know why you're saved? Because of the loving kindness of God. He's drawn you. And I pray that he opens even those and here minds and eyes even more to the love of God. Father, we thank you for letting us just chip away on this monstrous iceberg of, a, of your love. Oh, Lord, we could sing of it, preach of it, pray of your love forever. And, Lord, that's probably what we're going to do in heaven. <laughs> we'll be so captured and enamored by your love for all of eternity, and it'll make everything glorious. And so, Lord, thank you for just allowing us to spend a few moments, Lord, 
of exercising our minds and our hearts to be reminded of the love of Christ. You are, Lord, the exeget of the Father. And so when we look at your love that you displayed for us, Jesus Christ, we now know the love of God. And that love sent you, Jesus. And you demonstrated that love while we were yet sinners, and you died on a cross for us. And by your grace and your mercy and your providential will, we have placed our God-given faith in you. And because of that, we're free from our sins. The debt has been canceled. The list was nailed to the cross. And you choose never to bring it up again. So Lord, help us now convert that into the way we love our spouses, our children, our neighbors, particularly the way we love one another in this church. Please help us with that, Lord. We want to be a church that preaches the profoundness of God in the depths of the scriptures, but we want to be a loving church. Put to death arrogance that would drive out love. Put to death pride that keeps us from loving one another and forgiving one another. Cause us to be like your son more and more each day. We pray this for your glory and certainly for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen.